You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. If you have your Bible, I haven't said this, I think, once since I started. If you have your Bible, can you turn to Romans chapter 6? Yes. Three people actually have a Bible in the room. Four. All right, we're not going to keep counting how many people have the Bible in the room. Isn't that such a great sound? I love Kindle and everything like that, but honestly, like, I don't want my Bible to ever run out of battery. Amen? (laughs) Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Amen? Amen. Death no longer has dominion over him, which means if we're in him, it no longer has dominion over us. Amen? Amen. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're going to skip Colossians and we're going to go right to Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then everything went well for Jesus for the rest of his entire life. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, help us. In your name we pray. Amen. We already clapped for this, so we took care of point one. In a few weeks, we have people getting baptized, and this is signs of a healthy church. Today, what I want to speak on is I want to speak on the topic of new life in old storms. And Stephanie touched on it during the worship service. When she said, when we leave here, what we enter still might be broken, but will be different. And again, I got so excited because I'm like, there seems to be a lot of same-pagedness to make up more words going on in the house. Stephanie, thank you for hearing from the Holy Spirit. The confirmation is as exciting to the body as it is to me, and that is fantastic. We get baptized, and we come out of the waters, new life, and then we enter back into old storms. And I have a story for this. When Jacqueline and I first got married, we lived in old post-mall apartments in Fishkill, and we... It's just that we didn't have a kid and life was simple. (laughs) And one of our favorite pastimes was to shut all the lights off in the house, 
not for anything that you just thought, to listen to the people on Main Street and Fishkill arguing after they drank too much. <laughs> like, honey, you want to shut the lights off? Yes. You know what we're going to do, right? Yes. Listen to people fighting. <laughs> listen to all their business. And it was always entertaining because when men drink too much, they sound a little bit different than when girls drink too much. Men seem to want to do stuff that they're not physically able to do. Dude, you want me to jump through that fire right there? You want to wrestle? Want to play football on the road? Want to go to the city? <laughs> Girls, you tend to talk about obvious things as if they were the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Oh, I got a text message. I'm going to read my text message. And I'm going to tell you my response to the text message. Oh, wait, wait until you hear what they texted me. Hold on one second. My phone, it needs to update. Can you, like, why are you talking amazingly about normal things? So we listen to it. And then the fights start. And you hear guys and girls fighting, which the guy is usually pretty pathetic. Because he doesn't know why they got into a fight at all. And the girl knows exactly why they got into a fight. And it's not reasonable on any level. That was our old life. That's what we used to do. Last night, my neighbors decided to have a party. And I have new life in my house now. I don't want Sophia to wake up at midnight because some jokers are yelling outside. Because honestly, to punish them, if she wakes up, I'll bring her out there and they can deal with her. <laughs> so 9.30, they're out there yelling, screaming, playing wiffle ball at night, like what in the world? About maybe eight guys and six girls. I'm like, not bad guys, nice job, nice work, good job. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. You're still yelling, all the smoke from your little bonfire is now coming into our house because I like to sleep with the windows open when it's crisp like it was last night. It's beautiful. So last night, I'm like, we can't, I don't want to listen to their business anymore. I don't want Sophia to wake up. So I went out there in some basketball shorts and a sleeveless T-shirt, <laughs> stood on my deck. Go! Go! <laughs> it's midnight. My exact words, I'm not embellishing. It's midnight. I have a daughter, and you all need to keep it down. They put the fire out, and they all went inside. New life in old storms. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I just, I felt good about myself. Felt real, I walked around my house a little bit like, they did get quiet, didn't they, Jacqueline? You heard them get quiet? When you have new life, old storms, you can't tolerate them the same, but they still exist. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does our new life now infect our old storms? It's not an issue of old storms going away. Jesus still gets sent into the wilderness. There's still a devil after baptism. How does our new life begin to infect our old storms? How do we handle things differently now that we're new but everything else seems to not be? When, when we do a wedding at Salem, the wedding that I have now written is so beautiful because it's the combination of 
Pastor Tate, who was the first pastor here, Pastor Phil, who pastored here for like 7,000 years, Pastor Mark, and then, you know, the, the, the input that I've put into it. And it's this beautiful, historic, legacy-filled uh, wedding. And one of the lines, when you're about to say to the bride and groom, we're going to say vows now, repeat after me. One of the lines that Pastor Phil had in his wedding is this. As you prepare to hear the vows that this couple are about to make, I love the word prepare. Hear them and remember the vows that you made at your wedding while you listen. And I want to say this because I don't want to alienate anybody. I'm talking to three people today. If you have not been baptized and you're not ready to, this message is something to create expectancy for you to look forward to. If you're not baptized, but you are prepared to be baptized this year on Easter Eve, this is something you are currently preparing for. And if you're already baptized, as Pastor Phil's wedding ceremony said, this is a chance for you to assess and ask the Spirit if you're living into the vows you made when you got baptized. Remember your vows while we talk about baptism. Some boring stuff at first, and then I promise you this gets very exciting, but bear with me here. Baptism is a sacrament, and I want to tell you the definition of a sacrament so we can get rid of this once and for all. This is the official definition of a sacrament. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of something that's being imparted on the inside that you can't see. So is the Eucharist. So is healing. So is wedding. A sacrament is greater than the actual matter that you're seeing. So when we pray and consecrate the Eucharist every Sunday, something more than bread, more than matter is in those baskets. But it's also greater than metaphor. It's mystery, which the word sacrament comes from the Greek word mysterion. So whenever we talk about a sacrament, we're talking about a mystery. So let me give you a few quick examples. Healing is a sacrament. If Dan Savage has a migraine and I lay hands on him and he is healed, something more than the literal reality of my hand took place, yes? But at no point was my hand the actual presence of God, but it was more than just my hand, and it was more than a metaphor because he literally got healed. It was a sacrament. God manifested himself through normal things to do a work in Dan's life, to impart grace in him to either be healed or to live with it a little bit longer. When we come to the table, the bread, once it is prayed for and blessed, is more than just the matter that you're holding. But to put this to rest, if you died shortly after eating the communion meal and they did an autopsy on you, you would have juice and bread, I believe, from Sam's Club in your body. You wouldn't have some mysterious DNA with all sevens or something like that. 
It is not literally the body and blood of Jesus, but it's also not symbolically the body and blood of Jesus because something is happening in us as we approach and come to the table, digest and walk away. Something happened. It is sacramentally the body and blood of Jesus. It's a third category. Our only categories for explanation are literal or metaphorical. God, because he is other than those things, introduces a third category of explaining reality, and that is sacramental. How many know that my voice right now is not the voice of God? (laughs) But how many have left this room saying, when we heard that word, God spoke to me? It is, my voice is not literally the presence of God, but something is happening that's more than just symbolic. Something sacramental is taking place between my mouth and your ears. And God is changing normal realities into something else. Water you turned into wine. This is what he does. Baptism is no different. It is a mystery. But when we say God is mysterious, I don't want us to think that that means he cannot be found out. Please hear me because this is really cool, and if you don't find it exciting, it's just going to make me feel like a nerd for finding it exciting, okay? But here's things to us that are mysterious are things we can't figure out. It's a mystery. Why does my wife say she's fine when I know she's not? It is a mystery. Why am I as perfect as a husband as I am? I don't know. <laughs> Tis a mystery to be solved. When we, have to, when we say that's just a mystery, we're saying I can't know it. But God is not a mystery that way. God is a mystery because he can be known, but his, the, our knowledge of him can never stop. So he's a mystery because we will never stop getting to know him. Every time we get to know him, there's more of him to get to know. He's never-ending revelation. He's constantly revealing himself. We always get to know him, and because we can always be getting to know him, we'll never really know him. That's why he's a mystery. Not because we'll never know anything about him, but because there's an endless amount of him to know. And it's the same thing with things like preaching. Why does this work? Why do, when, when an imperfect worship team gets up here and they sing imperfect songs with imperfect lyrics, why do we feel something perfect in the room? When you clap at a stadium, why is it different when you come in here and start clapping? When you throw your hands up at a concert, why does something different happen to you when you throw them up in here? It shouldn't be happening. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery we're constantly learning from, constantly experiencing, and we know it's true. We have to let God be mysterious that way. And when we get to heaven, we still will never stop learning about him. The only difference is we'll be okay with it when we get to heaven because we'll be made right. Because when we're wrong, we think that the way we master something is to get to know them. Moses, God, when Pharaoh asked me who sent me, who should I tell him? We think that we can master something by finding out all about it. It's why we have an incessant need to keep looking at our phones and checking our Facebook account. Because the more we know, the more in control we think we are. But God is an endless ocean, both in depth and in width and in height and in breadth and everything. And we will never, ever, we will never get to know him. In heaven, we'll just be okay with it for the first time. We can start to be okay with it now. The minute God can be found out, he has a limit. And the minute he has a limit... I may face an issue that's outside of his limits. 
So I never want him to be exhaustible because my issues are exhausting and I need a God who will never be exhausted by them. This is why in Ephesians 5.32, speaking of marriage, which is a sacrament, Paul says, this mystery is profound. This sacrament is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a gift that God has given to everybody who's not the couple being married. Your marriage is a gift to me. My marriage is a gift to you because marriage is a location in which people should be able to see the relationship that Jesus has with humanity. This is why it's important to forgive each other endlessly. Because if we don't, then we're conveying a God who doesn't. Just saying. If you're single, you need people who are married. And watch this. If you're married, you need people who are single. Here's why. Because Jesus himself says in eternity, they will not be given in marriage. So here, a married couple reveals what Christ and the church looks like. But here, a single person reveals what heaven is going to look like. So singles, the way you look now is the way we're all going to look a billion years from now. Jesus will be the most important thing in all of our lives. All right. Well, I'm just going to say stuff, whatever sticks. Whew, 11.13, how in the world? When I was driving home and I wanted to get home, the time didn't go that fast. It did because I was with you, though. So we both wanted to get home. We both wanted to get home, to be fair. God, I need to stop talking. What happens in the water? I'm going to do it. Every pastor now doesn't just hide behind the Bible to get out of what just happened. What happens in the water? The first question we have to ask ourselves is why does Jesus need to get baptized? And this is amazing. Jesus does not need to get baptized because his flesh needs to be cleansed, which is why we need to get baptized. We go into the water to be cleansed from our sins. We go into the water to bathe in the presence of God. We go into the water to be washed as a husband washes his wife with the water of the word. Our, the church's husband does that for us in the waters of baptism. We become clean in there because Jesus is in there washing us. But why does Jesus go in? Why does flesh that does not need to be clean look at John and say, you need to baptize me? And John rightly says, you should baptize me. I'm dirty. And Jesus says, right, but you're dirty and I'm clean so you need to baptize me and we all say what here's the short reason why Jesus because he's clean makes anything he touches clean so Jesus gets baptized in water not so that the water can cleanse his flesh but so that his flesh can cleanse the waters for our baptism that's what makes it sacramental. The minute the perfect flesh of God goes into the dirty Jordan rivers, all of a sudden water is now deemed the agent that can cleanse because the flesh of Christ cleansed the water so the water can cleanse us. That's why he goes into the water. That's why he says to John, you're right, I do need to baptize you, but if I baptize you now, this water will not do anything to you. You need to get me under that water first so the water can become clean like the lepers I'm about to touch. And when it does, and then you get dunked, something's going to happen to you because I was in there. That's why Jesus gets baptized. That's why, the, that's why we bless the water. Because we, when, we, when we put our hand in the water and we say, Lord, bless these waters, what we're saying is make them like the Jordan that your flesh touched. 
Make them like the waters that you went down into so that they can be activated with the supernatural, Pentecostal, miracle-working reality of God. But when Jesus got baptized, he also fulfills the entire narrative of Scripture regarding water, which is amazing. And I'll use only a few examples of this. But in Genesis, you have water hovering over the face of the deep. And under the water, you have land. But land is buried in chaos. At one point in in the seven days of creation, it says that he put the waters in their place and dry land appeared, which means the dry land existed all along. It was just under the water. So first you have chaotic creation underwater. Then in the flood narrative, you have unrighteousness is buried under the water. All that is unrighteous was flooded and destroyed. So in the first story, under the water, you have chaotic creation is under the water. In the next story, you have the power of sin itself. The unrighteousness of humanity is now buried under the water. Then, when Israel crosses the Red Sea, and keep in mind, in Genesis, the Spirit hovered over the water. In the flood, the ark hovered over the water. In Exodus, Israel does not get wet. They go through the water. And Pharaoh's army is buried under the water. So you have chaotic creation under the water and God above it. You have the unrighteousness of the world in the flood under the water and the righteous ark above it. You have righteous Israel going through the water and Pharaoh's and the physical enemies of God are buried under the water. Everything gross and broken and sinful and anti-Christ is always under the water and everything godly and righteous is either going through it, not getting wet, or hovering over it. Until Jesus walks into the Jordan. And before he ever walks on water, he's plunged into it. And when Jesus is plunged under the water, the whole narrative of Scripture, chaotic creation is down there. The unrighteous people who died in the flood are down there. Pharaoh's army is down there. And Jesus gets baptized to be pushed all the way down into that water to even reach the enemies of God themselves. So for those of us who have been baptized, is our life reaching that far down? Jesus would say it like this, do you only love those who love you? Which is to say, do you only love people on the surface of the water? Or do you love deep? To people who are drowning in their own sin, do you, do you reach down? If you think that's wrong, let me tie it to the passion of Christ. In baptism, Jesus goes under the water. On the cross, he's plunged into death. In baptism, he reaches down to the depths, metaphorically, of everybody in the narrative of Scripture who's ever been underwater. And he reaches to all of them. And in the gospel, when he dies, he goes down into hell and he preaches the good news to the captives.
In baptism, he comes up out of the water, and in his passion, he comes up out of the tomb. Watch this. In his baptism, heaven is torn open, exposing the voice of God, and in his death, the veil of the temple is torn open, exposing the most holy place. The baptism of Jesus physically and literally changed the relationship that physical humanity has with the metaphysical realm. When Jesus got baptized, heaven tore open and the relationship with God is now made manifest to everybody who hadn't seen it up to that point. Jesus' baptism changed the relationship between heaven and earth physically. His death changed the relationship between the people and the temple physically. And when he came up out of the waters of baptism, the first thing that landed on him was the Holy Spirit. And when he comes up out of the tomb on Easter, 50 days later, the Spirit lands on the church. His baptism and his passion are the same event. That's why when you get baptized, it's not enough to say you're getting baptized into Christ. You're getting baptized into the event of God, which is Christ. Jesus' life is the event of God happening in the spirit in human form. You don't just get baptized into a passive person. You get baptized into Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And every day you need to remember your baptism and go through that process again until the day he returns and we're fully restored. But our life as baptized people is meant to reach down to the least of these. Otherwise, we're not living into our vows. We're not saying until death do us part. We're not saying for better or for worse. If we don't reach to the worse, we only reach to the better. And the minute he's baptized and he's anointed, the Spirit says, now go into old creation and deal with the power of evil itself. And when we come up out of the waters of baptism, we are new life in old storms for a reason. We should never be praying, God, remove the storm. We should be praying, God, how do you want to transform this storm through me? Out of the ashes we rise. Out of the darkness you shine. He turned water into wine. He never removes the negative agent. He does something to it. He doesn't remove water and say, okay, bring in the wine. He changes the water into wine. He changes the darkness into light. He puts his hand in the ashes and calls us up out of them. He's transforming. He doesn't remove suffering. He transforms it. One of the things we prayed in, in, in our meeting before service started with the worship team is we never need to be in this dichotomy between should I, like, why am, am I supposed to be joyful or am I supposed to be suffering? That if, we, if we live in that, we're going to exhaust ourselves. Here's the answer. Joy is something that happens to your suffering. Joy is an experience your suffering goes through. Joy is a moment that your suffering has. Joy happens to suffering. That's why in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame. For a moment there was shame. And then when Jesus saw the joy happening to the shame, he said, shame, you're not all that bad. I can endure this. 
and not just endure it, I can despise it because in comparison to the joy happening to it, it doesn't look all that tough anyway. If Jesus can say that about being alienated from the Father, none of our suffering is alienating us from the Father. But we, as baptized people, need to be the joy that happens to other people's suffering. We are the joy that should be happening to other people's suffering. Well, what about my suffering, Pastor? We should be the joy that is happening to each other's suffering so that we can be the joy that's happening to the world's suffering. What the world needs to see is healing, something going from not so great to better slowly. That's what they'll get on. They won't get on these long revival moments that come and go for years. They come for three weeks and then it doesn't happen for 60 years. What they need to see is an incremental patient people walking through suffering slowly, revealing a new report, re-narrating their suffering into a better narrative. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That is the narrative that we should be re-narrating the world with. I'm going through it. I can't live another day. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Uh, My relationship with my kids is horrible. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Re-narrating ourselves in the hope of the gospel. But it starts with us as individuals. It starts with decisions we make at the point of attack. We can nod and clap all day here, but at the point of attack, that's when it's going to matter. Before I went out onto the deck last night, Jacqueline says, what happens if they curse you out? Let's just assume they're not going to. It's a great question. Who am I? Like, I know who I am right now. I got a paper here with all the right things on it. (laughs) But who am I when it's not working the way I want it to? But watch this. Who am I in the moment that it first stops working? (laughs) It has to happen at the point of attack. If we're not making the decision, we all say, give me a minute, let me calm down. At some point in the moment of being triggered when it's at its worst, that's where a decision needs to be made to live differently. If we always wait until the emotions subside, then we will never change at the point where our emotions shouldn't have gotten crazy in the first place. So here's some fun questions to ask ourselves, or here's, here's one way to look at the world in terms of old storms, and here's the same way to look at the world in terms of new life. I did my best to make this as convicting as humanly possible. So I thought of all the things I suck at and put them on a chart. Because when you're admitting your own stuff, you can preach on it real hard. Oh no, that was a serious point. When you refuse to admit when you're wrong, you have no authority to argue at all. When you are a repentive person, at that point you have a little bit of capital in you to actually go have a back and forth with somebody. And not a back and forth that proves their sin and then you walk away. A back and forth that can lead them to becoming a repentive person to be restored the same way you're always being restored when you are. But if you're never admitting you're wrong, you have no right to say anything about anyone else's wrong. And here's your pastor telling you this, you're wrong. So start admitting it. 
Me and you, we get it. So wrong. The old storm says, I want to be a better person. It's an endless fight. Because we're not called to be better, we're called to be new. Because our better isn't all that much better than it was before we got better. It's true. The old storm says, I want to be a better person. Our baptism life says, I want to learn to be a person better. I want to be a better person. New life says, I want to learn to be a person better. That's repenting. That's saying the issue is not the surface of my humanity. The issue is everything running it. If my old self makes me a better version of my old self, I've become a worse self. I need to look at Jesus and say, that's what being a person is. And ask the Spirit to keep working through the waters of baptism to change me. Less philosophical for you. I want to parent better kids. My mom and dad never said that about me, but I'm assuming. The old storm says, I want to parent better kids. Baptism says, I want to learn to parent kids better. I'm telling you right now, that subtle difference is everything. I wish I was, I, I, I want to parent better kids. I wish my kids were better. And the gospel is saying, it's not about having better kids. It's about learning to parent better. Let me get everyone involved in this next one. I want to work a better job. The old story, no, I, I said I, I fail at these, not now I don't. disclaimer. I used to get so upset with Pastor Mark for all his disclaimers. I understand. Basically, preaching is 10 disclaimers with one point. Like, that's what a sermon is. I can't tell you how many times I said in my life, I want to work a better job. And honestly, after all the jokes about it, how absolutely toxic that feeling can become because you go to work, you spend more time there than you almost spend anywhere else. And when it's bad, it can suck the life out of you. And when you think that it's about having a better job, you don't understand the Garden of Eden. Let me paint a picture for you real fast of the Garden of Eden. A husband and a wife with no children and no need to work. <laughs> Everything given to you for free. Perfection in what's given to you. And you still fail. So any thought that says I need to move into a new house and it'll get better, Eden says you're wrong. Any thought that says I need to get a new job for it to get better, Eden says you're wrong. Any thought that says I need to live in a better state for me to get better, I need my political party to win for it to get better, Eden is saying wrong, wrong, wrong. It can be perfect and it can still go wrong because we the problem. This is where the problem is. The old storm says I want to work a better job. Baptism says I want to learn to work my job better. Getting to the point where we realize we can love work more than our job. Okay? Sometimes I say to myself, oh, you need to preach on that. Like last week with the wedding jokes and the marriage jokes, I left like, oh, my gosh, we need to have a marriage seminar really fast. Not kidding. <laughs> the old storm says, 
I want to live without others hurting me. Our baptism life says, I want my hurts to teach others to live. I'm going to let that sit out there because that's going to keep coming around as we go through Holy Week, as we go through the life of Christ for the rest of the year. That Just let that sit. The old way of living says, I want to live safe. And the new life says, if Jesus' body got injured, mine is going to get injured. And if his wounds can teach other people to find God, maybe mine can too. Scars don't get washed away by the waters of baptism. Wounds turn to scars in the waters of baptism. But the scars remain and point back to your baptism. Jesus' scars said to Thomas, I really did die. These scars should prove that I should not be alive right now. But now, the same scars that once proved my demise are now proving my resurrection. Don't get spiritual plastic surgery. Okay. Last one. The old storm says I want a better life so I can live. And baptism says I want to live a better life so I can die. Consider yourselves dead is what the Bible says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Watch this. Paul says it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And then in the next verse, he says, this life I now live, but you just said you weren't living. Paul is saying, here's what my baptism did. It let me count everything as loss. Everything I could brag in is counted as loss. Everything that I can prove my rightness with is counted as loss. Everything that I would use to prop myself up in front of my enemies who doubt me and think that I'm not as good as I really am and try to get some over on me and who try to manipulate me and who try to climb up over me for the promotion and all that kind of stuff, I count everything I would use in defense of myself as loss. That is reckoning ourselves dead. The the life of Jesus matters because his life was good. His life was perfect. That's why his death can do something for us. Listen, it is not exciting on Easter that somebody rose from the dead. If Hitler rose from the dead on Easter, it wouldn't be that exciting. What's exciting is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what makes it exciting. Not that somebody did that Jesus did. What makes baptism exciting isn't that I get baptized, it's that Jesus got baptized, so my baptism means something. And that's why we come to the table. It's not exciting that somebody gave us a meal, it's exciting that Jesus gave us the meal. That's what we boast in. It's not exciting that I live a moral life. It's exciting that Jesus lived one. Because anything of value happens in Christ. We don't trust God because of what he's doing in our life. We trust God because of what he's always doing in Jesus' life. And we are hidden with Christ. Everything God is doing in my life is in part. God is not doing everything God can do in my life. He's doing some of what he can do in my life. But everything God can do happened in the life of Jesus and is happening in the body of Christ. And we become the church precisely when we get baptized 
The church is the place that is built on baptism. But not just baptism in water. Baptism in the event of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we need to be pulling back for. That's what we need to be getting excited about. That's what we need to be asking the Holy Spirit to lead us into so that we can walk out of here new life in terrible storms because the perfect life himself didn't shut storms off until he walked out on them first and transformed what they even mean. And now in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul can say the storms of life that we thought were bringing our demise were really to teach us how to not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul doesn't say the storms go away. He said the storms that we thought were removing us from God are now pulling us into his resurrection. That's what we're called to be. Let's stand to our feet. Tomorrow night at 7, we're having the people who are getting baptized here to talk, have a much more in-depth discussion of baptism. I just want to invite you. If anybody wants to come, you don't have to. I'm not saying, you know, as your pastor, you, whatever. I'm just inviting you. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, even if you've been baptized already, it's going to be downstairs. It's not going to be a big event, like no coffee, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, when you come, it's really for them. So, like, just sort of, like, audit the lecture, listen to it, and then I'll hang out afterwards for questions and answers if you want. We want to make it meaningful for them and let the baptism candidates ask their own questions. But if you want to hear more about it, Elder George and I are going to co-teach this class uh, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock downstairs. Why don't you hold hands of the person next to you? So many things, Father God, were just said between the worship service that you anointed and this word that you gave me to deliver to your people. And I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you know that all of this isn't meant for any one of us. But I'm asking you, Father God, that you would allow to germinate in each individual person the part of this that needs to be brought to their remembrance. I pray for all of us who have been baptized that you would remind us this week of where we have lived into our vows well so that we can be grateful for the grace that you impart and where we need to work on our vows that we made to you. Thank you that our failure in our vows doesn't amount to you writing us off, but it amounts to you drawing closer to us, to teach us, to love us, to restore us, to disciple us, to wash us. And so I pray that there would be freedom, Holy Spirit, in every heart and every soul and every mind in this room to actually name and be able to navigate where we have fallen off and have there not be shame or guilt, but excitement and conviction. I pray for those who are getting baptized that life would slow down for them a little bit heading into that week. That they would have moments to think through. That they're not getting plunged into a formula. They're not getting plunged into a metaphor. They're getting plunged into your life, your death, and your resurrection. And they will receive the seal of the Holy Spirit which is you claiming that they belong to you. And I ask you, Lord, 
that this church would become a church that lives from its baptism, a church that lives from the day where we remember getting plunged into you for the first time, a church that lives from the passion of Christ, a church that isn't afraid of storms, but knows that you want us to be your agents that transform storms in our lives and in the lives of people who touch our lives. I pray, Father God, that we would be a church that is like the Good Samaritan that won't walk past somebody dead on the road, but would stop and use our own worldly goods to help and to heal because we've been plunged into the darkness and raised in newness of life. And whenever we need an example of what that life is, we remember that on the night when you were betrayed, on the night when you were handed over to suffering, to sin and to death, you took bread. And on the night when you were betrayed, you gave thanks. Spirit, give us the ability to say thank you before we complain, thank you before we murmur, thank you before we gossip, thank you before we shut down. Give us the grace like Jesus to say thank you even if it's a night where we're being betrayed. I pray that we would hold up the elements that have been betrayed in our life and say thank you. And he took that bread and you broke it, Father God, and you gave it to us. And you said, this is my body. You can't betray me because it's already given to you. As often as you eat it, eat it in the remembrance of me. And Spirit, bring to our remembrance that after supper, when he had finished eating, he took the cup and he held it up and he gave thanks and said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so now, Father God, here we are. As our worship leader already said, here we are, this is the best we can be right now. And so hover over this bread and hover over this cup and perform a mystery over it. Make it for your people sacramentally mysteriously the body and the blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him and hover over us and mysteriously transform us into people who are forgiven, into people who can confess their sin and know that we're forgiven, into people who will run to this table and then run out of here as the table so the world can run to us and experience your presence. Sanctify us that we may faithfully partake of this meal and that as we walk to your table, we all might be like the younger brother returning home to meet your love and your grace and your embrace. In your holy name we pray, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table, Lord. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.